0: banking institutions, you know, I don't think people are sitting around and saying, wow, you know, this is a welfare queen or this is a black man who um, can't keep a job. But these biases are inherent, right? They stem up. Can we trust black creditors? Can we trust them to pay back their mortgages?
1: Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, kathleen burns kingsbury is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best speaking about taboo topics international speaker author and founder of kbk wealth connection kathleen understands money and our relationship with it now here is kathleen
2: Hi, this is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, and I want to welcome back to the Breaking Money Silence podcast, Latoya Council. She came on the show last fall, and we had a wonderful conversation about intersectionality. And we started to talk about some of the work that she was doing as a grad student for her dissertation. And it got me really interested in having her back. Uh, You definitely wanna check out that first podcast if you haven't heard it, but let me tell you who LaToya is before we engage in this conversation about work families and stressors influenced by racism and sexism among black middle class. So LaToya Council is a black feminist scholar activist. She's an expert on work family conflict and its intersection with health and well-being for black American middle class individuals. Her dissertation is titled Her Work, His Work, Time and Self-Care in Black Middle Class couples. It looks at how couples or black couples manage work, family, and the demands of individual self-care practices. So Latoya, I am so glad we get to Break Money Silence for the second time. Welcome to the podcast again.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be back.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's great to have you. So I was really curious when we first spoke about some of the work that you've been doing around black couples and how they manage their family, how they manage stressors, including financial stress. So tell me how you started to become really passionate about this topic, enough so that you dedicate not only your dissertation to this topic, but also it seems like it's your life's work.
0: So my passion for this topic actually stems from my childhood. I grew up in a single parent headed home, mother headed home. And I would often watch my mom in, like whisk around the house in awe of like what I call her super abilities. I mean, she managed literally everything, work, family, community demands, and school activities. Essentially, my mother was a pillar in my life and in the life of others. And however, while I I admired my mother's ability to manage everything, I also noticed the toll managing took on her personal well-being. About three years before the 2008 recession, um, our home life changed. My mother picked up more um, hours on her part-time job. She was a nurse. So she worked nine to five um, as a director of infection control. And on Saturdays, she worked as the head of nursing for a nursing home. And so by this point, my sister was off in college and I was home watching my mother's health decline. So the impact of having to manage everything combined with stress increased my mother's health complications. And she passed away um, October 6, 2008. The doctors say that the cause of death was a heart attack. Complicated by stress. So, my mother's health challenges in my childhood stuck with me in my undergraduate and master's coursework. And I just wanted to understand more um, the challenges Black women and men face in the US nation state regarding their personal, intimate lives. And this passion led to my studying them in my, for my dissertation. I combined the two. And that is how I arrived at my current research, very much informed by my childhood experiences.
2: Wow. So it's sad to hear about your mom and the toll stress Mm -hmm. took on her, but she also would, uh, sounds like she was a phenomenal woman. And so as you're looking at this research, and maybe in a minute you can tell us a little bit about how you're doing it. One of the things that comes up for me as somebody who uses a lot of research in my work, so I don't do it myself, but I certainly use it is that so much research has been done on white subjects, but so few has been done, or in, at least in my experience, you don't see a lot of samples that are full of people of color as subject samples. And so I'm curious, You know, first of all, what did you discover in your research? And also, was it difficult to find subjects or was that part of the process easy?
0: I'll begin by saying, yes, you are right. <laughs> So much of the research on working family life does um, focus on white white individuals, white families. And finding subjects was not challenging for me because I made it intentional. I was like, okay, I you know grew up with a mom who had a college degree, but she still had to work multiple jobs. So I knew what it was to be a black middle class and black middle class adjacent um, in terms of education. So I was like, I really want to... Dive in and help change the narrative. So I, I stuck, you know, I stuck with the idea. I'm going to study Black middle class couples. And so I lived in Los Angeles um, at because I go to the University of Southern California, and I was like, I could stay here. There is a sizable Black middle class, but I'm going to move to Washington D.C. where you know I have connections. And so, using the snowball sampling approach, I was able to get participants. And the DMV is known for a very large and thriving and longstanding Black middle class. What I find in my research is that, you know, in terms of the middle class Black couples, what we know is that the meaning behind middle class for them is much different. And what this means is that most Black people with families maintain middle class status within a couple dynamic or by living in multi-generational households. So there is a growing segment of black individuals who are single and middle class, but the vast majority maintain identities as stable or core middle class through the couple dynamic or multi-generational family. So these two family pathways are important because they also speak to the wealth gap between black and white households. So for example, white couples are more likely to inherit homes, or receive a sizable family monetary gift to help them with purchasing their first home they also receive better mortgage loans at approval rates than black couples with the banking with banking institutions so many black couples tend to not inherit homes or receive these sizable monetary gifts to help with establishing a household so so that's a part of what i'm finding in my research um, a part of, from the wealth gap. Black people are also employed Employed in middle income careers, experience a much different work environment than their white counterparts as well.
2: So Latoya, before we go on to the work environment, you said something that I think is really important in terms of the Breaking mm-hmm. Money Silence podcast. And it's something that I've talked about when it comes to gender, but I haven't talked about it when it comes to race. Mm-hmm. What you said is that black couples get approved for mortgages less often white couples. That's important. Uh, it's problematic, obviously. But do you have a sense of why that is? Like what's behind that?
0: Yes. So the banking institution in the U.S. has been, since its inception, um, notoriously racist. This idea, there are stereotypes out there about Black people and money. Oh, the, the they have bad credit, right? So i and controlling images is very important. I think a longstanding trope that fills the minds of many folks in the US is this idea of the welfare queen. right? Ronald Reagan in the 80s really did a, a number on that, where you know the Black woman with the Cadillac and the multiple zip codes who had f- bad fin- financial life. And then the bipartisan bill from the Clinton administration on welfare reform and getting low income black mothers off welfare and in a financially better state. So these larger ideas and these that are out there are very much embedded within our society about what it means about black people and money and finances. And so banking institutions you know, I don't think people are sitting around and saying, well, you know, this is a welfare queen or this is a Black man who um, can't keep a job. But these biases are inherent, right? They stem up. Can we trust Black creditors? Can we trust them to pay back their mortgages? We know that when last hire first fired is definitely something that Black people experience much more so than white families. And so all of these things are driving forces in how banks and institutions deal with these clients. You know, Wells Fargo's CEO just um, had to apologize for saying this, right?
2: <laughs> um, recently, I saw that. Yeah, I saw
0: yeah. that. <laughs> you know, uh, this is this is this isn't going anywhere. It's still here.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting because what pops up to me from my history uh, working in banking is when I worked as an auditor. Uh, there was a whole, it was called compliance, and basically mm-hmm. you had to do a compliance review of the bank. And basically what that meant is you had to go in and make sure that they were following the regulations when it came to supporting the community around them and supporting people by funding their loans getting their deposits and in other words I mean it was all masked in that type of language but looking yeah. back it was really are we supporting people of color are we giving them mortgages or are we not treating them fairly and so at some point that needed to be looked at by the auditors well mm-hmm. the interesting, sad point, and I didn't get it at the time when I in my mid-20s, is that was an assignment nobody wanted. We, we, and I'm going to put me in this because this is a true confession, like we all saw it as kind of a joke. Like that's not real auditing. Like somehow it was discounted. And now, flash forward many years, and with what I'm learning, that kind of enrages me that That's how we viewed it when it is such an important function of an auditor. Now, I can't speak to whether auditing that way today, but I can speak to the fact that that's a pretty insidious thing that I had no awareness the roots in racism being somebody who, when I look back, it was an all-white auditing team.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. It's just like, who's qualified, right? Um, Sending, you know, Black couples through the ringer of looking like, going back, back and back, looking at their financial history, right? Not trusting, right? Because it comes down to trust. And who we trust also and comfortable with, you know, those are racialized experiences. And it is racism. It's internalized racism. Like, well, I don't know, you know, yeah you know, this person defaulted on a loan or did this at some point and they happen to be black, right? And if you put all those statistics together, you create a model. Well, it can show you, well, we can't really trust them or we're going to have to give them an interest rate that's much higher than um, what we would give maybe a white couple or a white individual, making it harder for black people to establish small businesses or even to be approved for small business loans or personal loans for whatever financial um, things that they want to access.
2: Right. And, And, you know, a lot of what I do around gender intelligence and being a gender savvy advisor historically has been more around you know, women and women entrepreneurs. And one of the things that happens with women entrepreneurs, and it doesn't break it down in this study, the study, of people of color versus um, people who are white. So I, I don't know that answer, um, although I'm going to look it up, is the idea that loans to business women are approved 33% less often. And so what you're saying is there's a very similar stat for people of color, whether they're in business or private, for their loans getting funded. And I think that's a real wake up call. I work with a lot of banks. So that's something that certainly uh, I'm going Mm -hmm. to to be moving forward on. Now to to get back to your research, you were also talking about in addition to the banking, which is external of the couple, there are things that are going on either in the environment or in their employment. What type of things did you notice or did you hear about from your subjects about the financial stress that couples are under?
0: many of them spoke about like the wages right like employment wages so you know not only are they experienced like yes we're middle class we get these we have you know nice sizable incomes coming in but compared to their white peers it's not the same right and so if we take those experiences where they're talking about financial stress and the living paycheck to paycheck by being middle class we can. We can take those words and put them within this larger conversation of what we know about employment experiences for Black people in middle-income careers. And so Black women experience less financial wages. So we already know that there is a gender wage gap, right? For every dollar a man makes, white women make $0.79. Well, Black women make $0.62 for every dollar a white man makes. And we know it's much lower for Latinx women and American Indigenous women. On the other hand, Black men, when they're talking about living paycheck to paycheck in my interviews and how that was financially stressful and working multiple jobs, they also spoke about experiences of underemployment and unemployment. And so taking that and putting it in conversation with this larger literature, you know, we find that, yes, Black men do experience last hired, first fired at much higher rates than Black women and women non-black people. Now, when black middle-class men are employed, they do make more money than their women partners because of the gender wage gap, but they also experience lower fatherhood bonuses than white men and Latinx men. And so they essentially, they end up bringing home less wages. So when couples are saying, yeah, we're stressed, yeah, we're middle-class by all standards, but you know, it's harder to pay for outsourcing. We live paycheck to paycheck sometimes. They're speaking to a broader system of uh, wages in these financial markets and working in these middle-income careers and the inequity embedded within these careers as well.
2: Wow. So there, there's so many layers to this. And that's really what I appreciate about the work that you're doing is that it's very uh, multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be back in a minute. I'm with Latoya Council. Um, we are going to continue to talk about black middle-class couples and their financial stress. And hopefully we'll offer um, some tips and tools if you are listening in to be able to take some action in that regard. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, it's Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, and I want you to check out my new Breaking Money Silence on Negotiating Class. You can go to breakingmoneysilence.com backslash negotiating. Learn how to overcome your fear of negotiation, how to ask for what you're worth, and how to shift your psychology in order to make sure you are confident and earning your true worth in the marketplace. That's breakingmoneysilence.com backslash negotiating. I am here with LaToya Council. She is the author of new dissertation, her work, his work, Time and Self-Care in Black Middle Class Couples. We are having a fascinating yet slightly upsetting conversation about the gaps in um, the financial services industry and access to wealth, access to loans uh, for black middle-class couples versus uh, non-black couples. And, you know, where, where we left off, LaToya, was really talking about some of the, you know, blatant discrimination that's either in the system or maybe it's unconscious, you know, bias at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, when you think about the couples themselves, you know, is that money talk taboo? just as high as it is in the general population in terms of what I talk about? Or do you feel like maybe they're talking more about money because of these different factors?
0: Well, I would say it is money talk taboo. It is taboo, like talking about money. Money is very, very sensitive and reflecting on my conversations with couples and, and, and what i analyze, analyzed, you know, a lot of them said, you know, there were many hard conversations and they weren't always <laughs> easy um, because people don't know how to talk about money, right? And and then taking, generally speaking, not knowing how to talk about money, not knowing about financial literacy, and then intersecting that with race and gender you, and the legacy of economic racism in the U.S. are all um parts that we need to consider right so it's hard to talk about something that maybe you didn't necessarily always have access to so it's a sensitive topic but one thing that i do want to highlight is my couples talk a lot about partnerships right this idea of we are in a partnership and understanding that even with my, talking about money being sensitive We know that we have to work together to maintain the financial health of this household. They see it with outsourcing, where they're not able to outsource at um, at the same rate because of the tense with the financial instabilities in their home. But they say we're a partnership and we have to talk about this. So it's hard, but they do it because they know that the well-being and the preservation of their family, not leading to divorce or separation depends on these hard
2: conversations. Yeah. And the, uh, the other thing that pops into my mind is the idea that you know there are different types of money conversations. So there's the types of we have to have this, we're in it together, we have to survive, see if we can thrive. And then there's the money conversations that you often hear about in the wealth services industry that's for you know affluent families. I'm not saying they're all white, but majority are probably white, where they're talking about values and passing on wealth and Um, some of these other topics, which are really vital and really key. But if you are living paycheck to paycheck, or you are facing uncertainty, chances are those are not the conversations you're going to be having. What do you think? I agree with that. Not all, like you said, I agree with you that not all affluent
0: couples are white. You know, a disproportionate share are. But you're right. When you are living paycheck to paycheck within the middle class, you're not talking about, you know, intergenerational wealth. You're talking about how to maintain just for the month or the year. And the racialization of class experiences is so important because I think outsourcing is a great way to talk about this. So, you know, a lot of the literature on work and family life looks paints this picture that women manage, women manage it all because they can outsource. You know, they can have someone come in and do the cooking, the cleaning and the childcare services so they can pay attention to work. But when you look at that at the intersection of race and gender, you find that while Black middle-class couples can sometimes or outsource much more than maybe lower-income and working-class, because of their different incomes, it's not to the same degree as probably maybe a white family with a different level of income, because it can get so expensive. So because their partners might experience inflexible help, um, work opportunities unemployment or underemployment, outsourcing kind of gets cut off, or family vacations kind of go away for a period of time, because they don't have that residual income buffer to the same degree. So yeah, so it's, it is, it's like we have to stick together. But the reality is sometimes money isn't there. And when it's not there, Unfortunately, the demands of housework, care work, and intimate labor does fall on women partners, much more than men partners, who maybe fathers end up working multiple jobs sometimes to take care of these things. So it's the racialization of middle class income experiences and family dynamics for sure.
2: So, if somebody's listening in and it either fits with their experience or maybe they are in the financial services industry and they want to truly understand and make a difference for the people that they're working for, uh, what advice would you have for couples when it comes to talking about money and uh, addressing these different stressors?
0: Um, the advice I would give is to have open and honest conversations with each other. I think it's important to become vulnerable about what you know about finances, financial fears, right? Not making money talk a taboo, like having these conversations, talk about past financial mistakes and being open to what you're going to hear from your partner. Um, I think starting from a space of vulnerability and trust can begin many important and productive conversations money is sticky, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And I also think it's important to remember the partnership. Again, when researching Black middle class men in my um, earlier work, you know, they really spoke a lot about partnerships. It's a partnership. So when thinking about romantic partnering, um, think about how this is a partnership and that you can get through this together and that no conversation should be pushed away that when you're, um, allowing yourselves
2: to be open and vulnerable. Yeah, I think breaking the money talk taboo, when you're able to be vulnerable and really listen to your partner, which can vary depending on your circumstances, it also, in all honesty, right, can vary depending on the day <laughs> and how you're feeling about your partner. Uh, and so I do think that there's a way in which engaging in these conversations is key. I also can see why if it's related to a great amount of stress, it hard to break through that money talk taboo you know I, I i'm wondering if there's one or two tips before uh we end today because i could talk to you forever about this topic <laughs> uh one to do tips you might have for people listening in about you know what action they can take either around their finances or around their stress
0: around their finances i would say um look in your circle And we'll start with the budget, right? But again, starting with the budget is if you don't know how to budget, that is something you have to learn. So look in your circle, survey your group of friends or your network and see, you know, what people have, write it down. And when you're ready, have the courage to ask, say, hey, you know, I noticed you have this and this. Would you mind sharing some tips with me? And I think that interpersonal knowledge is super important and i think learning leaning into that is super important as well in terms of stressors it is so important to take time for yourself i think audrey lord said it best where you know self-care is an act of political warfare it's 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 preserving self-preservation is so important if we do not take care of ourselves if we continue going going and going and not pausing and seeing if we're grounded um, and rooted, then it can lead to our health complications or it can exacerbate already health complications such as diabetes, high blood pressure and hypertension. And I think in the season we're in, in terms of COVID and the political climate um, and the race climate, it is is very important now to take time to practice self-care, whether that be meditation taking a walk while wearing a mask or, you know, taking time to read and be present, practicing mindfulness. Now more than ever, I think it's just super important and to just take care of ourselves, to be whole healthy.
2: individuals. Excellent. Well, you know, your work is fascinating and I find your writing, the more I read it, very powerful. And I really think that all the people listening in, especially those with white privilege, should check out your work. But uh, where can anybody find out more about you and what you're up to, LaToya?
0: And so listeners can find out more about me on my university page at the University of Southern California. Just go to the sociology homepage, click on graduate students and click on my photo. People can also follow me on social media. Um, I'm on Instagram at LDC underscore love, and love is L-U-V, I shortened it. Um, I call myself the love doctor, and it's all lowercase. My Twitter handle is at council underscore Latoya, all lowercase, and my writing has been featured on Medium and Ms. Magazine. So a simple Google search with my name, um, and Medium or Ms. will um, help lead listeners to some of my public guests.
2: Excellent. Well, we will put some of those links in the show notes. And I love that you are called Dr. Love. And I can't believe that came up at the end of the podcast, not at the beginning, LaToya. I know. I should have mentioned it again. Yeah, <laughs> no worries. No worries. It's been <laughs> lovely breaking money silence with you. And thanks for another engaging conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. <laughs>